you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real let those doves fly free and let's start this podcast this is a genre hopping movie reviewing and reappraising show on the playlist podcast network it's be real my name's chance solemn pfeiffer and I'm Noah Ballard. No, I couldn't be happier to be sitting before you, digitally speaking, and getting ready to talk about the work of John Woo. Do you feel, Chance, like you and I are kind of like mirrored versions of one another? I don't know why you would ask that. Okay. You mean because it's the central theme of 80% of this director's movies? It's definitely a central theme of... Kind of all of the movies we're going to talk about today. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, we come together and, and we do this thing. You know, sometimes we trade faces. Yeah. Sometimes I'm undercover. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're just hanging out in New Orleans waiting for your literal ship to come in. So that's just one of many themes that we're going to talk about as we celebrate John Woo's uh, 75th birthday on this podcast. We're really excited to have Karen Fang who has written about Wu frequently and is a professor at the University of Houston, coming up. She is going to talk about basically his whole career with us, um, but really uh, hit some of the early stuff too, especially the uh, mid-80s breakout around movies like A Better Tomorrow. Um, You and I are kind of... We reshaped this category a little bit because we decided not to do Manhunt on Netflix. So we kind of ended up with like this this sweet spot of uh, Hong Kong American crossover in the, the early to mid nineties. We're going to talk primarily about hard boiled, hard target and face slash off. Do you pronounce the slash or is that just me? I just leave a reverent pause (laughs) face off. Right. There it is. What do you want to start with Noah? What did you notice in watching these movies? Well, first off, I want to shout out to my good buddy, Brent Rivers, who has this running bit in our friendship that he maintains that Minority Report was directed by John Woo, even though it was very much directed by Steven Spielberg. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> and so to, when I was mentioning to him that we were doing the John Woo podcast, he's he, of course, his response was Minority Report and what else? Sure. Uh, so. I mean, it is in the time that John Woo would have made Minority Report had he made it, but he did not. For sure. No, but I think to Bren's point, there is something that you'll recognize from the Wooness of it all in contemporary cinema and especially action movies from the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, Karen talks about it a bit, but the whole idea of making American viewers comfortable with slow motion action like really does become a, you know, a focal point of some of the biggest franchises that exist today yeah. uh, and seeing like when we're first introduced to it, uh, you know, especially in the hard target and face off of it all. It's very interesting to be sort of, you know, like see the, the entry point here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, that I think you exactly could relate to like, Oh, what big studio movie is, is John Woo going to direct? If it's not paycheck, it's minority report. 
Sure. Yeah, there's no uh, Michael Bay moving the camera 360 degrees without John Woo first moving it 270, you know? Um, You see all the action in a John Woo movie, and it's not cut into a million little pieces, which if you consider, say, something like Falcon and the Winter Soldier, like the pinnacle of right now, like what action filmmaking is like, it's it's chopped into bits, and John right. Woo is just going to let you see this flying kick or two-barreled slide down a stairwell happen pretty unbroken and you'll just kind of bask in the majesty and if he's lucky poetry of it all yes there are those really good extended slow motion shots but then again like it does you do kind of see the invention of this like hyper editing that happens in these action movies when you know you have like chow yun fat's stunt double jumping out of a hospital and you almost see it you almost see it three distinct times you know from three just three distinct angles uh you know sort of doubling back a little bit so you really feel like the impact of this stunt for this movie uh which i think you know opens a different door and kind of the opposite door that you're talking about chance yeah that makes sense I, i would agree with that too um he is regarded as like a pioneer of the the idiom gun fu, which is building out um, martial arts cinema and taking it into this kind of street opera space um, with Hong Kong cops and gangsters in the eighties. Um, I also think that the the gun violence depicted here is kind of endlessly fascinating and is also sort of idiosyncratic to me um the, his relationship to guns is that they are just these like terrible but endlessly beautiful machines but like nobody ever gets real tactical you know it's they're they're just sort yeah. of like these they're these mangling alluring implements of fate um in a pretty shakespearean way yeah, they're like big, unwieldy swords. Like yeah. There's no... Other than like in face-off with the iconic sniper rifle scene, there's really no precision to any of the shooting that anyone's doing. It's like, if I have to kill a dozen people just to not hit you on the other side of the room, I'll do it. Sure. <laughs> Wu's career starts long before... Uh, hard-boiled in 1992. I mean, he comes up uh, making movies for the Shaw Brothers in the 70s, and he's an assistant director, and he makes comedies. He's made a lot of movies by the time he lands on the international map in 1986 with A Better Tomorrow, and that's where our conversation with uh, Karen Fang is going to start. Let's go to that now. Our guest today is a film scholar and English professor at the University of Houston and the author of multiple great books about Hong Kong cinema. Today, she joins us for an unblinking standoff through maybe we'll, which we'll realize that the guest and the host are just two sides of the, the same John Woo coin. Karen Fang, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Since he's such an imagistic filmmaker his his way with imagery is so indelible i'm just curious if i say john woo movie what pops into your mind's eye 
Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. We were talking before the start about you came to him through the sort of American movies, right? Whereas like that was a whole second and at this point, a middle phase in his career, right? Because he really became a sort of global phenomenon first, you know, in his, and, and John Woo and for, for a lot of the world is sort of like interchangeable with Hong Kong cinema, because even though action cinema is the most, um, uh, portable genre ac- across the globe, right? It's the one that travels the easiest, that is usually the, the sort of like most accessible film genre, regardless of culture and language, right? There was always something that was going on in Hong Kong action that was so distinct that, you know, that re- the reason why such a small cinema was able to, ex- to export its films all over the world. And then within that really stylish and competitive and distinct brand of action cinema, there were these auteurs and John Woo, I think is really the, the, the most distinctive of those action auteurs in Hong Kong. And so there was a sort of, the one, you know, one of the sort of reasons why Hong Kong cinema was discovered by the West in the, around the late eighties and the early nineties um, by like high Hollywood uh, likes like Quentin Tarantino was because he, because Wu was sort of, using like imparting this sort of like romantic dramatic stamp on what you know looks like in some ways could look like a Scorsese or a Michael Mann kind of actioner Mm -hmm. I feel like you've just spoken to it a little bit but let's start in in 86 you you wrote a whole book um about a better tomorrow um I wonder if you could help us understand what about that movie it's far from John Woo's first movie but it was the the first of his really beloved um so-called heroic bloodshed movies. Um, what did that film tap into that made it take Hong Kong and then the world by by storm? Yeah, so A Better Tomorrow, right, was this sort of transit, like, watershed movement movie for John Woo, for Chow Yun-Fat, the star, for sort of um, Hong Kong cinema's reputation globally, right? And it and it created within Hong Kong itself this whole subgenre of a particular type of action movies that were trying to emulate what John Woo did. And what John Woo did was sort of take the police procedural or the crime thriller and sort of give it a layer of um, psychological complexity and melodrama that on some and so, at some moments can seem to Western eyes like almost sort of embarrassing. So you get these like prolonged slow motion gazes between two men, this sort of counterpointing of violence with like, uh, like almost saccharine scenes of innocence, like the children who are singing a choir while there's, you know, intercut with action. Um, and, uh, and, but, uh, but if there's at the same time, this like very romantic sort of um, representation of heroism and you know, for, for local viewers in Hong Kong, I think it was recognizable as a sort of layering or a legacy of the Wuxia fighting swordsman films uh, that John Wu had trained in as apprenticed in, right? As, as you mentioned, he'd been working in the, in the industry for a while before making A Better Tomorrow. But what he did was sort of, instead of having the swords, right, he had two guns blazing, right? And he borrowed from the Westerns that he loved watching this sort of like tailored long coat that he put on Chow Yun-Fat. Um, and so it was a sort of, you know, I mean, John Woo is very much a filmmaker's filmmaker. He grew up as a sort of self-trained movie buff. And so there's so many references that he was just sort of able to scramble together in the way that Hong Kong does. Hong Kong cinema has always done sort of brilliantly borrow from everybody else and then send it, uh, then, then uh, rep- the manu- send it forward in this whole new guise. Would you mind, I know you've told this story before, but um, the way in which 
um, trench coats became very in vogue in Hong Kong after the release of this movie? Yeah. So movies movies are made really quickly. They go to theater. They go to a theatrical distribution really quickly. And even the best movies don't stay in the theaters for very long. I think at the time, like what was considered a successful film would have a two week run in the local theaters. A Better Tomorrow ran um, remained in theaters for three months in wow. the summer of Hong Kong. Um, the Hong Kong summer when it was released. And so the Mark Gore outfit, these sort of stylish outfits that had been, I think they were actually sort of the, um, the costumer had bought sort of Armani knockoffs in the sort of Hong Kong market because American Gigolo had come out a bit earlier. Okay. <laughs> and so, um, and of course, Chai and Fat is tall and handsome and just, you know, looks, knows how to carry himself on screen. Mm-hmm. And everybody was so transported by this incredible portrayal that Chai and Fat did that everybody started imitating, or I should say everybody, young men were all imitating um, Chai and Fat as Mark Gore. So they were all trying to, they were all in search of these, you know, dusters from the Westerns for these sort of stylish Armani style trench coats. But they were wearing in in Hong Kong in July and August, which is in a very humid, damp, sweltering environment, mm-hmm. right? But but people persisted. And so I think it's just a sign of sort of like, you know, I mean, what great cinema does is we often have this sort of powerful, visceral reaction to it, right? We want to be like the characters on screen. So we imitate them, you know, like in the face of, of right. environmental <laughs> like, context. Um, I want to pick back up on, on something you said uh and it has to do with John Woo's sense of romance and, and maybe just his earnestness as a person. I was reading back on the, the interview that you did with him back in, I think, was it 2004 when you got a chance to talk to him? Gosh, it's been so long. Or something like that. Maybe, something I think it was 2002. Like At least in interviews and not just yours, he comes off as just a very open, sentimental, um, you know, you'll ask him about a metaphor, an allegory, and he'll respond like i believe in innocence and truth and good and bad um do you think that people have sort of misapprehended his his sense of earnestness he um came from a very poor family like many people in hong kong of that generation he grew up in essentially like sort of squatter areas like and he was um educated actually by missionaries from at a very early age and he considers himself christian which is not um Christianity is not a very significant cultural influence um, in uh, greater in the Chinese speaking uh, world um, in Hong Kong more so than in other parts because it was a British colony. But even then, um, even those who would identify as practicing Christians are sort of um, it, it, it's often still re- relatively secularized or more cultural um, rather than sort of spiritual. You know, for him, like the uh, principles of of modesty, of gratitude, of service, right, are are principles that really resonated with him from a very young age, and that he feels very grateful for the su- success that he's achieved, right? He and this is something also he fa- shares with Chayun Fat, who is not Christian, but I believe his wife is, and 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 Chayun Fat, I mean has also like had this fascinating interest uh, late life position as a sort of philanthropist in Hong Kong. Um, mm. And so they, um, I think uh, Chai and Fat, and, and this was one of the reasons why they really connected, you know, as it's a sort of like dynamic director star duo is that they both sort of that, that Chow got and was able to personify these sort of like almost seem like, their archaic ideals of honor and loyalty and fealty and um, uh, principle. And, and those are clearly like principles that 
that Wu had had d- directed and presented, on, captured on screen multiple times doing these Wuxia films. Karen, you've written a lot about how central um, Hong Kong police have been to the cinema um, of Hong Kong, and uh, in your in your book Arresting Cinema, you you wrote about how the the police force itself has been sort of savvy and canny about. Um, its portrayal and uh, its closeness to some productions through the through the twentieth century. How um, how do Wu's depictions of cops in Hong Kong fit into this this lineage? Yeah, well, I mean, so at the time that he was uh, doing his films in the in the mid eighties to the early nineties, as I've written, the Hong Kong police had sort of had this really remarkable history and gone in the um, middle colonial period to being this sort of reviled or like untrusted emblem of colonial presence, right? And and not representing the local majority Chinese population at all. And through a more complicated history than than we may want to go into now, like they were able to completely reinvent that image. And and one of the reasons they were able to do that is through this very deliberate collaboration with the local media, particularly the Hong, the film industry but you know by by the time of the handover period from from 84 to 97 like this the importance of the hong kong police becomes as a sort of cultural and local symbol becomes even more important because it's sort of seen as the 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 profession the the putative resident or citizen and also the defender of a distinct hong kong identity and that's actually mm-hmm. really obvious in hard boiled which i've written about where there's a sort of that dramatic sequence of of tony lung uh, Chai and Fat uh, app- apprehending Tony Lung, the undercover cop, and, and and actually the undercover cop, I think you've probably seen, is again the sort of overturned plot device in Hong Kong. I think because yeah. of Hong Kong's peculiar history. Given the role that the Hong Kong police force has played in relation to protests there over the last couple of years, um, do you feel like there is any reckoning around the way people might watch or rewatch uh, John Woo movies today? You know, I, I I think certainly for for the older generation in Hong Kong, right, who remember this, who who remember this time after from from the from by the end of the seventies when the the Hong Kong police had sort of reinvented their local reputation, you know, through the early nineties, there must be a lot of nostalgia. I know there there I know there's a lot of nostalgia and wistfulness mm. about a time when they felt when they had a police that represented them and when they felt they had a relatively autonomous identity. And it is very sad as someone who who loves Hong Kong, you know, that we're talking now at this time when uh, Hong Kong has been in the news, the world news, you know, for the past five or six years. And it, it, it doesn't, it's not good for um, in a lot of a lot of people, people's eyes. And I think just last week there was um official parade in Hong Kong and it was the police who were marching not the Chinese soldiers so it was supposed to be the local police and they had actually changed their marching style so they were goose stepping the way that the Chinese military do and not in the straight leg British traditional British um, police march which they had 
done throughout the colonial history. And, you know, and so much of the handover negotiations had sort of centered on like, what was the police going to do? Like, would the police remain local? Would they remain autonomous? Would they change their uniform? You know, and so like the moment of the the Hong Kong police emerging goose stepping last week Hmm. was really sort of for many people, like yet another death knell of the of the 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 Hong Kong police that they want to remember is sort of becoming replaced by um, a, a new kind of government, and, and I don't know what John Wu I, like would say about the police now. I mean, it's, it's significant that he's not making as many of those types of films anymore, right? right? Because he's gone, you know, he's gone like many people in the Hong Kong industry to make movies in China, working in the genres that are you know that are approved within that industry because the money is so good and the mm. opportunity. And I mean, there are also like a, a amazing artistic possible opportunities available, right? You can command these huge scales of sets and, and, and um, extras and, you know, these amazing locations that people hadn't been able to shoot in before. And so, I mean, I think as somebody, you know, who's had this really, really long career, it was also just an opportunity for him to do something mm. interesting. I, I think he's really good at it too. I think that there's something about like the pacing and the scale of Red Cliff that like he's just like I'm gonna stop to do like an eight minute parable that defines this character, um, and it's he's really good at it. Yeah, I mean it's not you. You have to think about it, right? Like I mean the the David Leans, right? Right? Like yeah. it's a particular kind of directorial command that can both conceptualize and then lead a production of that scale. Right. And yeah, and you're, and you're, you're absolutely right. He's able to do that. And remember, you know, I mean, he's doing it after many, many years in the industry, but he's doing it like when he grew, when he grew up in a, in a very nimble, but you know, not very deep pocketed industry. And, but I think it's, and this is, I think this is another thing that like, you know, why Hong Kong trained such good filmmakers is because they worked so much at the height of the industry. Like they were just working on so many projects, doing so many different genres and just working all the time. And so that's, you know, he can able, he's able, you know, he can have that. He's had three different phases of his career, right? Hong Kong, Hollywood, and now the main, and, and now China, right? Working, you know, in some ways he's returning to wuxia, right? The genre in which he began, but on a scale and visibility that's unprecedented, you know, not just in his career or in Hong Kong cinema, but really globally, right? And, and who wouldn't be excited by that opportunity. Right. So what do you think changes when he starts making American movies? Is there anything that's fundamentally different? Well, I mean, the first thing that happens, you know, when, you know, for anyone, and then, you know, he wasn't the only Hong Kong director who tried to cross over at that time, right? Because they suddenly had an opportunity because of the global discovery of Hong Kong film. And also because a lot of people, a lot of artists in Hong Kong, and a lot of people in Hong Kong were trying to get out before the handover. So there were a lot of uh, directors and talent that were sort of, uh, connecting with Hollywood in that moment in the late, in the early nineties. And of course, Wu had the credit, you know, had Tarantino facilitating um, his conversations. But as you know, in Hollywood, it's not Hong Kong, right? There's a million producers, like, you know, looking at the bottom line, looking at the dailies, right? Like a million people reviewing the scripts, like before anything gets even gets greenlighted. I mean, Hong Kong frequently didn't even work with scripts. Right, productions were okayed based on sort of sort of like a, a combination, a packaging of director and talent, and and, and the availability mm-hmm. of you know at, at a certain time, and then people people would go there because the stakes were very different, that were just smaller, right? And so initially, I mean, it was hard for Wu even even to come in with all of this 
international recognition to have like the best sort of access and then still to have to be sort of answer accountable to producers. Um, so I think there was that. And I think there's also, you know, the sort of def- you know, a, a, the strangeness for a lot of Westerners of watching the 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 rhythm and the melodrama and the romance of a Wu film, right? Yeah. So like I, I mentioned earlier, the close-ups and the slow-mo, right? I mean, in a Hollywood action movie, the only time you might get slow-mo would be like just to to underscore a dramatic action sequence, right? So like I don't, you know, some some particularly sort of like dramatic action in this moment in a chase scene or something like that. But you know, Wu will always use a slow motion, the slow motion to rep- underscore the characters, mm-hmm. the relationships. And so a lot of people in, in the in the a lot of American watchers just you know, felt uncomfortable, you know, (laughs) about those sorts of moments. They didn't know how to read it. They didn't know how to pace it. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting to to me to hear you say that you sort of found him through that moment, because for a lot of like Hong Kong loyalists, you know, we sort of felt that the movies didn't do justice to what, you know, were were very diminished versions of his Mm -hmm. talent. And it wasn't until face off that you really saw like an, a Hollywood version of what Wu was known for, yeah. right? You know, this incredible action, this almost improbable sort of like storyline, but one that makes these characters so engrossing. Isn't Face Off kind of just like a loony literalization of this like mirroring theme that he's like always been really into? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're exactly right. Like that's what I say. You know, that's a really, that's a very... Uh, excellent way of putting it right i mean for for wu is always interest in this in in the social the human relationships like for him like that's the acme of emotional like reward in in a, in a movie right and so you've got it, travolta and cage and you've got somewhere uh, over the rainbow right you know and these sort of like you know like uh like lurid surgery scenes, right? I mean, it's sort of this sort of classical sort of classic Hong Kong recipe that when you describe it, it just sounds like, as you say, loony. And yet it works because it works in the hands of a master who was at at that time given complete control. Mm -hmm. Uh, He turns 75 um, on May 1st, which is the occasion for us doing this. Um, If you had a, could interview him um, this year, almost 20 years after you, you last spoke to him, what would you be most interested to to ask or to check in about? I'd like to ask him, like, if he could tell the story of Hong Kong now, mm. what would he, how would he tell it? Like, what would be the movie he would make about Hong Kong if he had, if he made the movie right now? Free of any restriction or regulation or like within, or the a movie that he could make right now? I mean, he could, he could do either, right? Because what's yeah. happened in the Hong Kong, um, Hong Kong cinema is bifurcated. So a lot of the talent has like gone to the mainland and is like making stories that are like, that are can be distributed in the mainland. And like, they're sort of like trans China sort of stories that are not specific to Hong Kong. They're, they're politically palatable, right? And then like the Hong Kong cinema has actually sort of survived in this very, very small sort of minor key cinema that's resolutely local. I mean, it's sort of the cinematic version of the independence movement that's happening there, Mm. right? So, I mean, I mean, obviously he's John Woo and it would be weird for him to suddenly do like this, like small budget feature funded by grants, which is what these these independent um, indie filmmakers are doing. But I mean, An Hoi, who is a fascinating 
um, director of his generation, a female director who had educated abroad and whose films are always centered around female characters. So that might be um, someone you might want to start uh, watching. Um, Anhoi has been um, moving back and forth between the sort of high note, low note sort of um, industry productions. And she's always making movies about sort of Hong Kong and like what she thinks of Hong Kong. And so it would be interesting to sort of, you know, would, would Wu right now want to make another um, like police procedural, right? Mm. Like would he put something outside of something that seems like uh, outside of history or outside of politics, like, and, and do it like a social drama in the way that he's, you know, A Better Tomorrow, right, is a remake of a social drama, a Hong Kong social drama from 65, right? Like maybe he would do something like that as a way of sort of skirting the issue, but it would just be interesting to ask him what he could do if he wanted to, you know, I mean, but I mean, I guess he has the opportunities to do and he hasn't chosen to, which may be telling also. He needs you to nudge him into it, I think. We've got to make this interview happen. Uh, right. Well, Karen, this was uh, so wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. Um, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Chance. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks so much to Karen Fang for, for all the context on, on Wu's career, both before and after the movies we're going to discuss today. I would highly recommend checking out her, her books, either explicitly about John Wu or that, or that mention uh, his films. They're well worth a read. I enjoyed looking into them. Um, okay, Noah. Hard-boiled, 1992? A tough-as-nails cop teams up with an undercover agent to shut down a sinister mobster and his crew. Hmm. Um, so having watched a bunch of the John Woo heroic bloodshed movies from the 80s, um, the mirroring you mentioned, a lot of these movies are two-handers, and they do depend on the the chemistry and the symmetry and also the disjunction between the two people at the center and um chow yun fat is great in a better tomorrow he's great in the killer but i think by the time you get to hard-boiled um he really meets his match in tony lung um because you're seeing kind of the third version of chow yun fat who's really like versatile within this action space i know he's a skilled dramatic actor but for, to be this kind of like self, I mean, the movie's called Hard Boiled. He's like a self-consciously stylized clarinet playing cop who just hangs out at the jazz club when he's not trying to, you know, kick ass and maintain order. And I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what the American analog for this persona is. Like, maybe like a Warren Beatty could be seemingly like this artistic and this charming and this weird. Um, but you, you've seen him do like the, you know almost kind of satanically placid killer in the killer and in better tomorrow he's kind of like the sunny corleone archetype of like the damaged charming guy who you kind of know this guy's not headed for anything good and and here he's just he's just full-on charming irascible star yes and very it's a very physical performance uh and he's yeah he's got a, a certain swagger uh, you know, of course, there's also these like, great 90s outfits that they're all wearing. There's a lot of like billowy khaki pants, like with sort of these, you know, barely buttoned 
you know, band lawn shirts that they're When's all that look wearing. coming back? You know, I've got a whole closet full that I'd love to bust out. Uh, maybe this summer. Yeah. But yeah, and there's like a swagger scene to see, and there's almost that, you know, j- there's something about the jazz playing that's, In I don't some know, it cases smacks of... Just... <laughs> Go ahead. It smacks like of Collateral, uh, which is an incredible film too. There's something yeah. Michael Manny about this movie, uh, whether before or after, or who inspired whom. Yeah, the jazz is, it's like, I would call it smooth jazz if it weren't howling when Tony Lung drives his red convertible into Hong Kong for his library assassination at the beginning. And it's this completely unironic mix of aggressive smooth jazz. I know that's an oxymoron. And like the bass from Seinfeld. And John was just like, this is, <laughs> this is the score. Let's bounce. We should also say that Xiao Yun-Fat's character is named Tequila. And of course, you have this incredibly violent opening sequence in the bird-filled tea shop, uh, which we can talk about. Uh, But to the point about where the style sort of meets the rules of the road, so to speak, uh, you have this very interesting dynamic of a not-quite-Western police force. uh, And Karen talked about this a little bit. But the idea that there's this, like, overarching control over these, like, cowboy guys who much like Chow Yun-Fat will just, like, get into anything with or without backup and deal with the consequences later. Uh, as described, uh, you know, in this opening, this cold open where, what, a hundred people die, including, like, a super important witness? Yeah, exactly. Um... And his partner? What I think is fun about this movie, too, is all the, like, weird kind of, like, narrative constructs that are happening to reveal the movie's both plot and genre to you. So this movie is a, is a similar play kind of to, like, The Departed of it all, uh, where you have, like, one cop on one side and the other cop on the other side. Uh, and they're, like, it's y- – y- the audience sort of asks the question, like, oh, when are these two, you know, lines going to intersect? When are these two guys going to be in a room together with guns pointed at each other? And what's going to happen? Uh, and what I think is fun about that is, like, seeing how playful those lines kind of intersect. Like, I think the thing with the white roses coming in and they have to figure out the song – that is like in the note and that those notes correlate to a number system that like unlocks another sort of poem about what the crime people are up to. Uh, so that's sort of fascinating to me. It's some quality office politics goofery when uh, Xiao Yun-Fat's tequila has to come into his, the office of, I think the woman he's dating, but they don't, they don't seem connected quite in that way at least in in my read but then they have to sing lionel richie's hello together to crack this code right yeah they're at the point in their relationship where they've like been together a couple times but they're not exclusive and then of course this like super suave super stylized protagonist is threatened by the fact that this woman gets a bouquet of white roses every single day from some unseen suitor so uh it's funny you or uh, fitting i suppose that you bring up the departed because tony lung 
originates what becomes the Leo role in Infernal Affairs in 2002. So he plays basically... Which was the basis for that movie. Right. So he plays this part again. But um, yeah, he makes such an interesting uh, companion to Chow Yun-Fat because he's much more chameleonic. Um, You know, he seems like he is super into the music like the soundtrack is playing like just for him at the beginning when he like takes down this guy in this library and he's like oh yeah you betrayed him with this like thousand watt grin and blows his brains out and then he kind of like slowly loses that personality and that performativeness over the course of the movie as you realize sort of how damaged he is and yeah he's playful with tequila sometimes but he also kind of just ends up um you know wearing so thin that he takes a back seat to Tequila's personality and sails away. Yes. Yeah, there's some great photography done with him on this sailboat where he's kind of like, he's got this like kind of sad sack residence uh, below deck. And kind of a Joe Bluth existence. Yes. Or uh, Tom Hanks from uh, You've Got Mail. Sleepless. After he breaks up with... No? Oh, well, well, both. Well, he, he lives on a boat in both. Well, why didn't we do You've Got Mail as a Tom Hanks in the Water movie, Noah? No! <laughs> Keep going. Uh, yeah, but there's... And then there's, of course, a great set piece where a bunch of anonymous goons attack him on the boat. Um, what I love about these movies, too, is that... I don't know what the number is, but I think if you've been shot less than 12 times... Typically, you're fine. Sure. But anything more than that, typically, you're not fine. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that Tony Lung as Alan like, really has fun with just how many freaking times he gets shot and just like has a sling or like a red mark for two scenes and then yeah. is totally fine, uh, which, is, which is hilarious, especially as related to the boat scene. One of my favorite parts of A Better Tomorrow, actually, is that the... Chow Yun-Fat's Mark character gets shot in the leg and he's, he's like a ruined man because of like the damage inflicted on his leg. And I was like, oh, it's so amazing that John Woo like really shows the physical consequences of all this gunplay. It definitely is less of a consequence the further into the career <laughs> that you get. Right. Unless, of course, you were somebody who um, is executed to make a point in the plot and then the consequences are very visually dramatic um is it too on this note is it too early for me to talk about john woo's rules of aerial gunfire please okay so if you're a nobody it is required that you jump into the air after you've been shot oh yeah if you're a somebody you could jump in the air while you shoot which makes you extra good at shooting right and I think, too, it shows your – there's like a an inverse correlation of how important you are to the story and how when you get shot, just the momentum the bullet carries your body like across the warehouse. For sure. <laughs> like if you go 10 or 15 feet, you're probably like – we never – you never had a line. Right. Um, but the more dignity you're given, maybe that's it. It's about dignity. Um well, maybe not in Hard Target, but definitely in Hard Boiled. If you're a somebody who's in trouble, jumping into the air to avoid gunfire is one of the only ways to do so. 
Um, if you stay on the ground, you're screwed. Um, but if you're confronted with a nobody, you can just stay on the ground and probably outdraw them. You do not have to jump in the air. You can just shoot them. And as we've mentioned, then they will be forced to jump in the air as they die. Little known fact, uh, I would say automotive rule that John Woo has. Yes. Uh, car doors, uh, not able to shoot a bullet through those. No. <laughs> Can we talk about my guy, Philip Kwok, who plays Mad Dog in this movie? Oh, like the stunt coordinator who they gave a part to without yeah. any like of him in the actual script? Yes. yes. Let's talk about him. I love this because this is this is in the tradition of Hong Kong filmmaking where like we're writing and rewriting the script as we go. We look over at Philip. Hey, he is a perfect dead-eyed heavy. Like let's slap an eye patch on that guy and let's get him in this movie. And I just don't think we have enough of that like visual first casting anymore of like this guy is a soulless animal. Like put him in here. <laughs> I think he's a very nice man. If you look at other photos of him, uh, he doesn't look like that. He's definitely acting. Um, but boy, he is just... He basically takes down all the vestiges of the old gang in that warehouse by himself. And then, to cap that off, bends at a 90-degree angle to light his cigarette off the hood of a flaming car. And I appreciate that shit. Me too, yeah. No, and I like the Mad Dog character is sort of like the, um, you know, th- there is honor among thieves. Yeah. Like his demise like comes in the fact that, yes, he will not shoot a dozen patients and nurses just for the sake of it. Um, but yeah. There it Unfortunately, is. his boss will. Johnny Wong. Not, not a nice man. The worst. Um, so can I ask a general question? Yes. What's your mileage on just the maximalism of John Woo? Because, I mean, this is a two-hour, ten-minute movie where the hospital gunfire is, what, 35 minutes? Yeah, no, and it's a lot. And it's the kind of thing, too, where, like, the... I mean, this is clearly inspiration for, like, the John Wick of it all. Um, right. You know, and that is like some beautifully choreographed, you know, fighting mixed with hand to hand weapons, mix, mixed with other weapons and firearms and whatever. This one's a little bit more like sustained mayhem. Right. Uh, mayhem is the word. When you have the the bad guys undercover as cops massacring the cops who are undercover as patients. I mean, it's just this like terrifying um, puzzle of just murder. (laughs) Right. You know, and then you have, of course, what I think is both the best and maybe the worst thing about this movie is the babies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So at some point they just like have a root, like a nursery full of 30 newborns and they're like, Oh no, the elevator's broken and the guy's coming in and the building's going to blow up. We got to get these babies out the window. And it is one of the most ludicrous, but also harrowing scenes of like these SWAT guys like juggling babies out of a window while there is like real physical effects are going on around them of these explosions. Uh, And you're kind of wondering. It's nuts. It's like, oh, Teresa Moe has like gotten to do at least a couple fun things 
in the office. Is this movie going to use her in an interesting way? And it's like, nope, she's in charge of the babies. Yeah, she's in charge of the babies, except for the one that uh, Chow Yun Fat. That I think That's is more off. funny. <laughs> that, that where he is the baby under one arm, and then you know they're like making things explode right next to him, and the baby seems to be fine. And then and he apologizes to the baby for the I believe he says for the X rated action. Right, and then he doesn't apologize those for covering that baby in someone else's blood. Nope. Can we talk about? Uh, just like John Woo's like blood splatter for a second. Oh, yes. I think it really kind of again goes to what his deal with violence is because he's. I mean, he is a master of these these insert these insert shots that don't have to be there. You know, for instance, like a like you said in the ev- in the evolution of this action movie, like John Wick's movies don't have these insert shots. It's John Wick has to keep moving. You don't get to see the bone come out of the arm or the blood splatter or what. But just, they always seem to have this kind of, there's like a real sense of loss when that blood is splattered because it's often on a white, you know, white hospital wall or a white library floor. And I think you're, I think he is setting it up so you literally see a loss of life, like sullying the world, which goes again to stain. How er- yeah, exactly. How earnest he is about this stuff. Yeah, the violence literally leaves a stain on these pure white backgrounds that he chooses and to on frame. Babies. Let me ask you this, just as a general watch question for you. Do you find that it's harder just generally to watch overly like gun violent films just in like the world we live in? I just I just watched the Michael B. Jordan without remorse Tom Clancy thing, and I always have much greater suspicion, and my my red gun violence red flags go up around movies that seem to glorify like the tactical nature of like being an expert and like what to do because I think that has a lot more with like the mentality of people who end up worshiping guns than John Woo's you know urban operas do they 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 just seem so far-fetched to me that it doesn't bother me that much and i'm not saying that these movies like espouse anything problematic or they're like glorifying violence i think they're very aware of what the violence sort of wreaks on these characters uh it's just sort of it was an interesting week to watch movies so chock full of and it does seem like you're right like a lot of exploitation movies like this uh are kind of pushed to streaming where the people who want to find them can find them but it's it's been a while since there's been like an a-list michael bay kind of carnage gunplay movie at least one that didn't have a political backdrop of some kind check out six underground is that the one with the eyeball? I had to turn that one off. Um, all right, my guy. Should we tell people how we rate movies and uh, take a crack at Hard Boiled? On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories. A good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more... We play our dangerous game. 
Good-bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad-good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Tut, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I think this movie is definitely a lot of fun if you buy into what the style is doing and then of course it's so outrageous that it can't help but being a lot of fun that being said i think that some of the visual literacy of some of these outrageous action sequences is a bit muddled just because of how frenetic everything is so in that way i almost think this one is a bad good what what part of it is muddled for you who's doing what yeah some of the sequences where there's just so much so many like bird feathers and plates and things flying through the air. And there's like a one guy whose face is obscured because his machine gun is going off and the other guy who gets hit, but you can't tell who's getting hit. Cause there's, you know, 95 guys all wearing some version of the same kind of like cool suit that gangsters wear that the 300 person body count maybe doesn't have the weight of a few fewer people getting killed but like maybe knowing them a little bit more uh but that's just the visual style that he's going for i i don't think it's a a bad thing i think in this one in particular as opposed to the other two it's the hardest visually to follow it's not a bad thing but he rates it bad good fine folks uh i'm gonna give it a good good i think this movie's awesome um and uh i know the the carnage is carnagey and at a certain point, I'm like, why? This is going on forever. And I just kind of had to give over a little bit to, like, I think that's the point that he's trying to make um, and live with that. And then pretty shortly, we were back with Tequila um, jumping out a window with a baby while it peed on him. And, and I was I was fine with that. Oh, the, we didn't even talk about the pee. I loved the pee. <laughs> I thought he was peeing for a second, but I liked that it was the baby. I think I think that was the joke in a way, and you were a perfect audience for it. You want to talk about Hard Target ninety three? A woman hires a drifter as her guide through New Orleans in search of her missing father. In the process, they discover a deadly game of cat and mouse behind his disappearance. Let me say, Why? incredible premise and like setup for this movie. I mean, ludicrous. Yes, ludicrous. But the fact that, like, it's set in New Orleans somehow makes it all sort of believable. And this movie also believes that because it's set in New Orleans and just saying, oh, it's New Orleans, that that's enough to have, like, a most dangerous game in New Orleans. Right. And also, it's set in New Orleans. Like, so naturally, our hero is Belgian. 
naturally our, our hero is Belgian action star Jean-Claude Van Damme. We've never done and a JCVD movie on this show in six years. I'm so glad that this is the first one. All right. It's like a drug, isn't it? To bring a man down. Name of the missing individual. Douglas Charles Finn. Relationship of reporting partner. Daughter. You want to find your father? Get somebody who knows the city to show you around. Who's the nuns? Lady Selection. Who's the Queen's Special Forces? He's obviously not someone we should unrest him. I think Mr. Goudreau would make a very interesting quarry. To your point, though, I think John Woo is... is a, so this is his first Hollywood movie. Um, we can talk about some of the struggles that he had making it in a second. But I think he is excited to be in New Orleans. I think when he is at his most engaged, he is a great director of place like even the uh versions of los angeles that he finds in face off which la can become like real anonymous in american action movies real quick um but john Wu finds the convention center and he finds like the harbor outside san pedro for these boat races and stuff um and him in new orleans he i think he's just so excited by these like abandoned like corridors that are like sort of like a almost like amusement parky and sort of western but they're just like empty he's into it he he's very into the big easy uh and he's also into just putting together one of the strongest like goofy casts for an action movie of people you synonymous with like other big roles who have like really not done a ton otherwise uh, looking at you, Arnold Vosloo. South African actor you. Arnold Vosloo. Yes. Uh, I mean, Casey Lemons is in this. Um, and of course, the great Lance Henriksen is in yeah. this. Um, and then for some reason, in the last fray, and the, yeah, the last reel, Wilford Brimley is in this movie in, I think, one of the worst roles that he has ever done as French question mark creole question mark resident uh who was connected with jean-claude van damme uh had you let me seen, ask you this had you seen the gif of wilford brimley with bow and arrow on the horse riding away from an explosion had you ever encountered that on twitter yes and it was a really satisfying moment to be like oh it's from hard target interesting <laughs> That was exactly what I I was like one day I kept seeing him like one day I'll watch whatever that movie is and holy shit here it was Chance have we ever done another movie where the protagonist's name is Chance we've never done Homeward Bound we've never done Rio Bravo <laughs> so I think I think this may be the only one I love that Jean-Claude Van Damme's name is Chance Boudreaux uh, such an unlikely such an unlikely name for someone who appears with, and this is prime Jean-Claude Van Damme business in the front party in the back. 
the like, mullet is the, this greasy mullet it's it's incredible it's the the party the party in the back is you know on its third night and has taken multiple people to detox it is yes the the back has seen things that the front has not <laughs> um the production story behind this movie is that Universal is like happy that John Woo is there, but then he like wants to make a movie and they're like, oh, we didn't think you wanted to direct movies. It's just like one of those stupid like studio politicking anxieties where it's like, oh, we're so excited, but like, oh, are you sure you want to make a movie? And then they give him like 65 days to make it, um, which a hard boiled took like 130 to shoot. So like 65 is nothing especially for someone who's like used to finding the movie and as he makes it and choreography is a huge part of it um so yeah there's uh there's some struggles here and then he has to i think he recuts it and resubmits it to the mpaa seven times because like they couldn't get the violence um at a at an r-rated level and uh, then Jean Claude Van Damme and his producers like steal the movie and, and and make a cut of it where he like cuts out a bunch of Lance Henriks and stuff. And there is a quote from Jean Claude Van Damme where it's like, people didn't pay this 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 movie ticket to see Lance Henriksen. They paid to see me. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the same year as Universal Soldier, so I don't think he's wrong. He's not wrong. Um, he's just uh, he's just challenge he's just challenging auteur theory. Um. He is indeed with his own sort of uh, what I'll call denim theory, meaning if you are an action star wearing only denim through a two hour movie, uh, they're there for you. I really enjoy the simplicity of this movie. I mean, it's almost breezy by John Woo standards. Um, And people don't really have to. It's a double edged sword. Because nobody really has to make much of a case for why they're doing anything. And on the one hand, like, do not make Jean-Claude Van Damme externalize and speak a case for why Chance Boudreau is, you know, looking for $217 so he can rejoin the Merchant Marines, pay his union dues, and uh, get on the right side of history here. Like, he does I don't want him to explain that. That would be bad. Um, on the other hand... I think you are missing some of the like real like bone deep character hooks that are John Woo's trademark. Like it doesn't, you don't really have a sense of justice or pain or redemption in here. Um, that's why I use the word almost breezy. What what do you make of how slight the movie is? Well, I think this one has like one of those classic Woo challenges where the emotional stakes of a daughter uh, and this one, Yancey Butler uh, as Natasha, uh, looking for yeah her her father who has become uh, sort of displaced and like hasn't asked her for help, uh, and then his of course his body turns up. So her employing Jean Claude Van Damme to sort of figure out what happened, uh, because like her character isn't that deep, uh, it's hard to find that emotional core that you're talking about. Um, but I think this movie gives up on anything like that fairly quickly for a sense of swagger and like balls out, you know, visual effects that it, 
I don't know. And this one to me sort of corrected all of the visual question marks that I had from hard boiled and really just kind of went with the, we're going to show you everything and everyone's going to be on fire at some point, And you're going to wonder how they're on fire for that long. You're going to wonder how this motorcycle is being driven with this guy's feet for 35 seconds. Oh my God. But like, it's there. It's there, and the camera. This is what you were talking about in the opening. The camera will not cut away, and there's something really awesome about that, uh, especially in the cold open too, where you kind of see it's sort of like wild, wild west when you like see the first guy getting like hunted down. Yeah, uh, and the, it cuts back to this, and this movie also is like infused with this Sam Raimi campiness. Sam Raimi being a producer on this, but even with like the arrow shooting through the air it's such like a xena xena warrior princess kind of like move to it uh where it's this sort of campy you know is it gonna get to him where is it gonna hit him where's the blood gonna explode kind of visual gag do you think john woo and sam raimi kind of got to pal around a little bit and be like no i think your crash zooms are great no 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 i think your crash zooms are great yes let me point out another layer of what you're talking about and just to kind of re-defend or maybe explain hard-boiled for a second i mean that is the opus of his cop and gang movies like you fun there is a fundamental chaos to um like a collectivism around those two bodies in hong kong as they just like crash into each other as he's made them crash into each other for a decade and here he's like i'm gonna do it at my the highest pitch i've ever done it and i think part of what you're talking about um in some of the clarity and the legibility is trying to get into an american space where you know the joke is this summer one man like we we have this nation has a cinema of one man and for john woo to kind of um dive into that space especially with like one of the most recognizable and um egotistical egocentric action stars of his day um i think some of the clarity you're talking about comes from that um what's your favorite uh set piece stunt violent act in this movie I mean, you have to love just how many times that Lance Henriksen gets, like, blown across the firework factory in the climactic scene. The Mardi just Gras to graveyard? Sort of like, the Mardi Gras graveyard, yeah, where he just, like, kind of dusts himself off after being, like, shotgunned to raise a little bit more hell for a few more minutes until he ultimately dies, spoiler alert, via grenade to the crotch. Now, you're sure you want to pick that and not Jean-Claude detailing the rattler with his mouth? That's a good one, too, when he takes the rattle off it and then uses, stuns the snake long enough that it'll prove to be a, you know, a, a way of stopping the guys chasing them through the, through the bayou. Phenomenal. I agree with you that Brimley's character is terrible. Like, as soon as I realized, like, oh, shit, they're going into the swamp to see his uncle, and I, I haven't seen Wilford Brimley yet, I was... That was when I texted you, and I was like, this is the best moment of my life. Like, Chance is going back to see Uncle Duvet in the bayou. Um, Brimley does not have a single, like, line or idea of consequence in the movie he's just mumbling in the worst cajun accent you've ever heard um 
looking like Santa. I do have to say, after the memeable moment where he like goes away on the horse with the bow and arrow and the explosion, I do think it's the funniest thing in the world that Lance Henriksen has to remind his goons who are about to chase Wilford Brimley. He's like, listen, just because you've seen the most eye-catching thing that you've ever seen, which was that fat man riding away with a bow and arrow, do not <laughs> chase him. <laughs> he is not the point. And I needed to be reminded he, yeah, of that as he well. He will not go here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. It's just hard to get over lines of like Wilford Brimley, who is frankly not trying that hard to have a Cajun accent, Ooh, saying no. things... Like, he hands the flask over to the girl, and he goes, Here, drink, but do not spill. It killed DeGrasse. <laughs> like, come on. I think Adam Sandler's Cajun Man is more convincing than this. Yes, for sure. I mean, if Wilfred Brimley could do a ha-ha, and that would be an improvement on his performance. Let me ask you this. In every other scene, is Arnold Vosloo just doing a Tim Curry impression? Uh, I don't want to speak ill of Arnold Vosloo. I think he's amazing in this movie. I take it back. Rescinded. Um, One of my favorite action set pieces in the movie, and it goes back to my thing of like, what does John Woo think of guns? Is when Vosloo finally catches Randall, who's the facilitator who he's previously called, he's previously invited to wakey wakey, you fat fuck. He's got the shotgun on him in the car, and just the most malevolent Vosloo grin that's going to be used to amazing effect in The Mummy seven years later. And he just fucking unloads this shell into this guy's head, and the insert shot is of the outside of the windshield. As just like blood and pellets just chunk with the la- <laughs> so loud into the windshield, and Vazu just yeah. goes, "Oof!" <laughs> and it you really felt that one. I really did. <laughs> oh man, that's incredible. Do you kind of feel at the end of this movie? I I started to feel the meddling at the end of the movie when um. Or like the need to shorten it, the need to just like, can we can we just get out of here? And I understand why Universal might have wanted to get out of the Mardi Gras uh, graveyard in under an hour and 45 minutes. But um, let John Woo do his thing. And by the time like Henriksen's like spinning in a circle being like, I've been to Bosnia. I've been, I've killed everywhere, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, is this, this seems like a way to wrap this movie up really quickly in a really nonsensical way. I don't feel like John got to play out the string on this one. Interesting. I don't know. I think my, maybe I'm just a, a you know, heartless suit at heart. Uh, but I kind of preferred the abbreviatedness of the mayhem yeah, I thought it was. I mean, I th- think there's some great set pieces in here. We didn't even talk about the motorcycle sequence. It's um, great. That's incredible. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think this one to me really like landed nicely because it it still felt at its heart like an action movie, uh, which is what I was trying to get out of it. And it had some moves. It had a visual style which was both unique and clearly informative to you know another 30 years of cinema um but yeah it it, i think it holds up too just on its own as a film rate it i think hard target is a good good 
And I got to say, I really liked it a lot. I might watch it again. It's very watchable, but you're such an easy target. Um, I think this is a pretty easy bad I'm a hard target. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) You think it's a bad good? Oh, they would hunt you down in five minutes. They would give you the five-minute head start, and then at 5.01, Vosloo and Henriksen and whatever. I thought it was outrageous that the guy only gets, like, 30 seconds head start. Five minutes. Give him, like... It was five minutes. Give a give the guy an hour. It's a controversial thing to say in 2021, but I I really hope that Noah, you can handle it. I don't think we should be hunting people. <laughs> if we learn nothing from the Chris Hemsworth, no Liam Hemsworth, Quibby, uh, most dangerous game, which is literally the same premise and essentially a pretty similar thing, except set in Detroit. Uh, then yeah, I mean, if, if our if our taste for it hadn't soured by then, hunting humans, uh, I mean, what can you do? How much more content can hunting humans provide? Um, no, we're almost two hundred episodes in, and uh, we're about to talk about Face Off. I've been uh, chasing this guy ever since I joined the force. He- he has no conscience, and he uh, he shows no no remorse. He's the mastermind behind numerous bombings and political assassinations. He uh, has a felony list a mile long: murder, arson, kidnapping, terrorism—you name it. He's the most dangerous and brilliant criminal mind I've ever known. I, for years, I've I've been watching him. Tracking him, studying his every every move. I know his every every mannerism, facial tick gesture. I know him better than he knows himself. And now, after all this time, I finally figured out a way to trap him. I will become him. I tr- I'm trying to get on John Woo's level and I like found things in this movie that spoke to me um, and moments of acting and sentiments that so far outpace, you know, the conversation we would have had about it six years ago, which would, I think would have been more like, har, 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 they switch faces, it doesn't make any sense, which it doesn't. And we can absolutely har, har, har at it. Um, but I do just things I appreciate in this movie that I never expected to. I, for one, had not remembered that they switch faces oh yes you thought this was <laughs> mighty ducks four colon face off from the poster at least it 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 almost doesn't look like an action movie is that fair it like almost looks like a supernatural like freaky friday right to foil a terrorist plot an FBI agent undergoes facial transplant surgery to assume the identity of the criminal mastermind who murdered his only son. But the criminal wakes up prematurely and seeks revenge. And I don't think it is a spoiler to say he puts on the other guy's face. Oh, hmm. I the think- revenge, the aforementioned revenge. Plan one, step one, is put on the other guy's face. I have to say, though... One of the absolute coolest scenes in this movie with some great tricky workarounds is faceless Nick Cage 
smoking that cigarette in that lab. I love that shit. That's a pretty good one. Um, in the in the glasses, and then with the edit around the slow clap that you're not expecting, you're like, I don't think they're going to show it, and then they show it twice with the clapping. It's great. Let me ask you this though, because I almost feel like this is Wu having a little bit of fun with his own bullshit and i say that with all due respect but there's something about the sean archer character that is so like he's almost making fun of like the chow yun fat of it all where it's like this guy is so moody and like so obsessed with work and like this outrageous sort of like international criminal slash I don't even know, fashion icon, if you will. <laughs> yeah, his trench coat model. That it's 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 almost like it's the premise is comical that I mean it almost starts with notes of um gross point blank, where you have, of course, Nicolas Cage being like, This guy is so irritating, I just have to assassinate him. Uh, almost with that tone, too. He's like eating some fast food and like setting up a sniper rifle where he sees uh, John Travolta with his son on a fucking carousel and he kills the son by mistake and just injures Sean Archer, who then is in a terrible mood for the next five years. (laughs) Yeah. It's his home life crumbles around him. What did I mean? Caster Troy's next six years were probably really fun. He probably took a lot of those Alka-Seltzer hallucinogens and had a grand old time. It is. But also this movie, I think, diverges from the woo action tropes and just like the tropes of like these goofy premise action movies from the late 1990s when it becomes a movie that its theatrical trailer can use the talking heads sample of, this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. When it kind of looks at, you know, what these two men, like the, the the stripping of humanity that these two men have endured by living the way that they do. And it almost becomes a bigger story about men learning about their their lives. The road's not and taken. The, yeah, and the road's not taken. This movie has weirdly, I think, more in common with like the family man, which will be made in a couple of years, than it does maybe with like the hard boiled world. Okay, so I really don't want to talk about the family man, but I do agree with most of what you said. Um that that's the part I was truly not expecting to find, especially in Nicolas Cage's performance. There are moments when Sean Archer is inside Caster's body. So you're seeing Cage and he's like meeting Caster Troy's minions and he's like trying on and not even in like a, oh, he's got to go undercover kind of way, but in like a, this guy Dietrich, this drug dealer played by skinhead Nick Cassavetes um, is like asking me about my plots. And I like Nick Cage is acting simultaneously realizing that it's easier to be the man who killed his son than the man who has a dead son. And also, moment to moment, how fucked up it is that he's realizing that. That some of the best acting I think he's ever done. It's like 
And this is Nick Cage's favorite movie. He said it in a GQ interview last year that he's ever been in. And you can totally see why. It is the most um, ludicrous and on the nose, but also somehow layered acting exercise that anyone could ask for in a loud, successful movie that I got to say, part of the charm of Face Off watching it now, as opposed to when I was 15, is like, they will never make anything like this ever again. <laughs> they they won't unless they reboot this exact movie. Um, and I and I don't even think that. I mean, John Travolta doesn't get his fair due maybe in this movie, but he's also like playing the weird Nick Cage character while he's like trying to seduce Joan Allen and but also like maybe trying to be like a cool dad. Uh, is is also so weird and entertaining, uh, if not compelling acting. Yeah, I don't think he can quite get to where Cage is going because I don't think the, the it's not, doesn't give him. He's I just don't think he's as good of an actor, and also I don't think the material is quite there. And it's complicated by the fact that Castro Troy is still more or less like raping Eve. Um, um, but yeah, there there is almost that hint of like. Okay, I'll submit to. I'll, I but guess I want to push. What? Go ahead. Wait, finish your thought. Where? Yeah, you have those notes of Castro Troy in Sean Archer's house being like, "Do I have no choice but to submit to the mundanity of this existence?" Yes, and I would argue too that I was also like kind of freaked out by the conceit of like, is this dude going to? like assault this other dude's wife in a pretty like aggressive way. And I would argue the movie kind of handles that relationship the most tastefully because if anything, the new Sean with the Nicolas Cage underneath him spends a lot of time trying to connect with this unhappy woman that he sees and does try to figure out, okay, like what is going wrong with this marriage that I can fix? Like, of course, parenthetically, it's as a fuck you to his rival, but he isn't just there for the physical contact with Joan Allen. He's there to show that I can be a better husband than you can be, Sean, and I will show you, and I can run the police department better, and I can be a better cool dad. So it's more about like playing the game better than it is just about sort of this like heartless revenge and like, you know, I mean, of course it creates, you know, a- emotional trauma as it goes, but I don't know that the emotional trauma is necessarily the, the, uh, the goal. Yeah, I know it, that doesn't make it any easier on Eve, but I, I agree with you. The movie is. Well, it's a John Woo movie. She doesn't have a ton of agency. No, she's a successful surgeon. She is a successful surgeon. Um, yeah. Enough no. so that she believes that face transplants are real. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Is this the movie that, because it's Cage's favorite, did it like unlock like the Nicolas Cage that would populate the screens, the small screens uh, for the next however long his career will last? Um, I don't know. Let's see what's around this time. You're like right after the Oscar and what, right before Con Air, right after The Rock. You're really in like his peak bank ability. Uncharted territory. Yeah. But I think there's something about like the scene where he's dressed as the priest and he like 
fucks with the girl in the choir and makes and like no one of the more insane facial expressions ever captured on film or digital. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. I think I'm looking at it right now on IMDb. And that also oh, like man. the fact that John Woo. I think that one of the things when you're younger and you watch a movie like this, and when you watch a lot of movies that you might term bad good, you think like they didn't mean to do this. This is off the rails. This is crazy. I think what's kind of amazing about Face Off is like I think they meant to do a lot of this shit. And like John Woo, oh yeah, does the angular crash zoom in on Nicolas Cage's like orgasming face, like at the exact <laughs> moment to tee up that fucking Nosferatu mug he's making. Um, like they are completely <laughs> in concert with one another. I love to. And you have to poke at this movie because A, it's from 1997 and B, it's outrageous. I just love how stupid the faces look when they're separated from the bodies. Oh, yeah. That is the the bogus science in this movie is, I mean, I would say unparalleled uh, and and, and, and totally shameless, too, with its level of just like, what do you? What do you, what do you mean? Like it'll be healed in in out. It'll be healed in hour. It sits on like a plastic tray in one's face, and then it's healed in hours. Like, yeah. How does that? What is that? How does that work? Yeah, Hollow Man saw this movie, and they're like, "We need the we need the empty face to look better than this." Yes. Oh um, my god, Hollow. Oh, you're talking about the memoirs of an invisible no. man, right? You- <laughs> You watch your fucking mouth. Uh, <laughs> I'm talking about Hollow Man. Uh, <laughs> What's your favorite sequence? Probably like the prison riots. Yeah. Like that's that a good sh- one. You got some uh, John Carroll Lynch and some Tom Jane in there. Hell that's yeah. That's right. That's right. Did you know that uh, Mark Wahlberg, according to IMDb Trivia, turned down the part of uh, Pollux Troy? I can't imagine why he did that. Who did that? Mark Wahlberg. Why wouldn't oh Why wouldn't he want to play Pollux Troy? I don't know. Alessandro Nivola seemed to be available. He is going for it. This is he is well because that's the thing. Like if you're in the same you know private plane with Nick Cage in the scene, like you can't not be at an eleven. Right. One of the funniest things in this movie, Nick Cassavetes, bless him will never live up to the legacy of his father. But uh, one thing that John Cassavetes never got to do is deliver the line, Hey, Sean, how's your dead son? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. That's so What a great line. I love the... It's such a throwaway scene, too, for, like, no real reason, because it could be deeply emotionally and narratively impactful but when you realize that caster troy has put on the travolta face and it's like oh but how did he like get that science done to him and then of course like his boss and partner uh cch pounder and robert wisdom respectively like they know what's going on so he'll be like out of prison in no time and then it just like cuts to them like just tied to the face off chair as he's burning down the fucking the whole thing like Pouring it's not Martin Sheen 
Yes, pouring gasoline and lighting them on fire. It's no Martin Sheen falling off the sixth floor uh, warehouse from The Departed. And it's almost like the opposite. It's such a throwaway, like, oh, he's fucked. As you can see from this one throwaway shot, he's fucked. Thank you. (laughs) That he is, yeah. (laughs) He will die in prison now. Not a big deal. He will die in prison in the end. Can I say something insane, Noah? I would love nothing more. From the twisted mind that gave Monkey Bone a bad good, I think think that face-off might be good good. I think that it is much more in control of what it is doing than I would have ever thought possible. And the fact that its premise is absolute lunacy, I can live with it. Like they'll never, and again, I I just, maybe this is a bullshit argument, but I just find myself charmed, but like they'll never give a hundred million dollars to like nutcase actors who are themselves drawing people to this with a a Hong Kong filmmaker who's like in the process of, you know, changing the way action movies will look for the next at least 10 years. Um, It won't happen again. And it seems like a precious artifact and maybe I'm being too precious about it. I'm going good, good. Wow. Yeah. I mean, a movie that you can pitch as, you know, what, like speed meets trading places Come on. Or however they got this made. What would With you... post-Pulp Fiction, Travolta, and Cage about to make his favorite movie ever. Wow. Yeah. I mean, if you package this thing right. But yeah, I agree with you. You agree with me? I, th- I think it's a good good easily. Uh, in a... Yes! I feel like for movies right now, these are mediocre times. Oh my and god. Looking back to a golden oldie like face off uh really you know gives you a sense of like what like what movies should be doing and like with all the money floating around in streaming like why can't you just like find two if you want to make Joe Pesci look like he's 60 and not 75 why not put that 100 million dollars into like switching his fucking face with someone I know, this may not be a very intellectual thing to say, but it's just like, why are we afraid? One of the most fun things that you and I get to do over the course of our six-year journey on this show is talk about movies that are weird. And they are just all over the fucking place. And they were doing what they wanted to do and they were trying stuff out. And I just think that movies today, especially $100 million movies, are so afraid to just be bizarre. They're like, the last thing we ever want to do is be laughed at or made fun of. Um, and why instead try to be German expressionist, baby? Face Off is a fine film. Okay, let's do five minutes on uh, Other Woo as we close out here. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. I rewatched just the red sand fist fight between Tom Cruise and Doug Ray Scott at the end of Mission Impossible 2. It's so much slow motion. It's so much of Tom Cruise and not a stuntman doing like flying roundhouses in the air. It is so cool. But we are not that far away from us redoing that, doing all the MI movies and being like, Mission Impossible 2 is awful. What? <laughs> and, and I believe it is. So is it just the fact that that fight scene is at the end of two hours of like 
acidic gobbledygook? Like, how come that movie didn't speak to us in a woo sense? Is it because, can I toss something out? Is it because exposition is just not his thing and those movies are all exposition? Well, yes, those movies require a certain level of like you being interested in the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy of it all. Whereas I don't know that that movie has any larger ambitions than just being a cool action movie, like as witnessed by like the first freaking frame where he's just like, excuse me, I'm upside down rock climbing. I can't take your call. But if you leave me a a brief message. Um, Yeah. And I think too, like that movie, he fundamentally like doesn't understand, as I think you said earlier, the Ethan Hawke character. Like, I don't think Ethan Hawke is like a Chow Yun-Fat kind of, you know, morality super cop guy. I think he's a... I don't know, closer to uh, like a Jack Ryan. Yeah, there's not a lot to that guy until Tom Cruise in the sixth movie is like, wait, there should be more to me. (laughs) Well, really, it's the third one. It's the Abrams one that really like buys into it as like a romantic comedy. Fair enough. That's what I mean. Like maybe Broken Arrow is like one of the worst examples of like, John Woo just did not care about this Christian Slater character. The movie just does not care about these characters, which on rewatching Face Off is like, that's the most amazing thing about this movie is how much it cares about just nonsensical madness. Um, I want to encourage people real quick. I checked out um, Red Cliff, at least part one, which is when John Woo returns to China in the late aughts and starts making these like vast four hour, like historical epics about the like revolution in the time of the Han dynasty. And he is so good at it. As I talked to Karen about Um, his sense of uh, pacing and very kind of like plain, but loud gestures that like clarify who characters are Um, just watching him like Marshall show us how like this uh, invading force, like gets caught in a turtle formation of, a hundred thousand Chinese soldiers is just absolutely breathtaking. So if anybody like wants to see where his career um, went with that in the crossing in uh, from like Oh nine to 15, it's pretty interesting. And I recommend broken arrow Come starring on. Christian Slater and, <laughs> and John Howie Long. <laughs> All right. Howie Long's first build, right? Yes, Howie Long's first build. <laughs> That's Broken Arrow 2. Okay. When all the other Long sons, Kyle Long and Chris Long of the Eagles and the Bears, tear the doors off Humvees. Justin Long? Wrong. Wrong Long. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid... Mark Strong? We have to go. What a time we've had together. We really marked the days with film, haven't we? <laughs> Why are you talking to me? Are you like, are you wearing a wire? Are you trying to get me to say something incriminating? <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, this was a ball. Thanks so much to Karen for, for joining us. Um, we're going to be off for uh, two or three weeks here as we um, hopefully get out there and start to have a little bit of a summer. But uh Thank you all, as always, for staying tuned. And if you want to check out the Be Real-specific feed, we're going to release some episodes from the Patreon up there to 
to tide you all over. But uh, no, my friend, thanks for this. Thank you, buddy. Until soon. 